KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Art Power, welcoming the renowned Jack Quartet to San Diego for an evening of music titled Modern Medieval with works by Caroline Shaw, Morton Feldman, and more. Monday, May 6th at The Loft at UC San Diego, artpower.ucsd.edu. A sports-wide boycott targets racial injustice. What you're seeing is unity and that we need something to happen. We can't just wear the shirts, take the knees. We need to start seeing action. I'm Mark Sauer with Maureen Cavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. An examination of racism in the military. Close to 20% of the enlisted in the Navy are African-Americans, but only 9% of the, the officers. And then at the very highest ranks, the three and four star admirals, there are no African-Americans at all. And an infectious disease specialist answers COVID-19 questions. Plus, our summer music series continues with the San Diego band, The Sacred Souls. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by Bill Howe Plumbing, Heating and Air, Restoration and Flood Services. Family owned and operated for three generations, Bill Howe has been serving the plumbing, heating and air and water damage needs of the San Diego area since 1980 with their fleet of trained professionals. Bill Howe has the ability to service all major and minor plumbing and HVAC emergency needs 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Bill Howe is committed to providing excellent service to their customers with transparent quotes and attention to detail on every job. Whether you're in need of an HVAC installation, plumbing, or water damage restoration in San Diego, they offer the convenience of scheduling an appointment over the phone, online, or through live chat on their website. Call 1-800-BILL-HOWE or visit billhowe.com because we know how. Our top story today, a swift and startling reaction by professional athletes who boycotted some basketball, baseball, and soccer games following the police shooting of a black man in Kenosha, Wisconsin. It started when the Milwaukee Bucks, whose home arena is an hour away from Kenosha, refused to leave their dressing room for an NBA playoff game in Florida against the Orlando Magic. Baseball's Milwaukee Brewers soon followed suit. The Seattle Mariners voted to cancel their game in San Diego against the Padres, Then the Dodgers canceled against the Giants in L.A. Women players for the WNBA Washington Mystics appeared for their scheduled game with T-shirts bearing seven red bullet holes printed on the back in honor of Jacob Blake. He's the 29-year-old Kenosha man gravely wounded in Sunday's police shooting. Meantime, the NBA says its playoff games will resume today. Joining me to discuss this is Pastor Greg Hendricks of the Rock Church East County, who's also a former pro basketball player and assistant coach in the NBA. Welcome to Midday Edition. Thanks for having me, Mark. Well, what do you make of this most recent wave of activism by professional athletes against racial injustice and uh, police violence? Uh, you know, it's. I think that what you're seeing has been, you know, brewing over, you know, months and months and months of things that have been going on prior to Mr. Blake being shot. The fact that the matter is that these athletes who were on, on the major stage, uh, global platforms, they're using their voice to say, hey, we, we need to see some change here. Our, our, our situation in our country is not right. Um, we need to see some reform. Um, things need to be corrected. And we're willing to stop what we're doing 
which is, you know, making a livelihood, bringing entertainment to, to fans all around the world. We're really to stop what we're doing and, and to let people know that um, you need to be engaged in this issue right here because this is a problem. And not only does it impact just the common everyday person who are fans of the game or who may be watching the game, but it impacts us who are playing the game. Now, as a black athlete and coach, what's been your experience with racism? Uh, you know, I've, I've had uh, incidences that have happened from being looked over for positions. I've seen it on different levels, um, some more extreme than others. Um, but what I what I have noticed is the fact of the matter is it's it how you deal with it really, really uh, can dictate um, your whole experience on what that looks like. Granted, um, that's not in every single case, but um, in the cases that have been, uh, you know, that I have been involved in, um, how I dealt with them. And I, and to be very honest with you, sometimes I've lashed back. Sometimes I've, you know, just flew off the cuff. There's other times where I've handled it um, a different way and, and the outcome was different, but it definitely does exist um, all the way to the highest levels. Now, activism in sports is not new. Some examples include Muhammad Ali taking a stance in the Vietnam War, the famous Black Power protest by American track athletes at the 1968 Olympics in Mexico City. More recently, the knee taken during the national anthem by NFL quarterback Colin Kaepernick, who's become an icon in today's movement. Does this moment feel different to you, though? Are you surprised by the spontaneity of these teams and the players the, yesterday who got involved? No, it doesn't surprise me because uh, a lot of the players were really struggling with coming to play in that bubble initially. And it wasn't because they weren't in shape or they didn't want to play. It was the fact that they were really heartbroken by all these issues that uh, the community was facing in regards to George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. And, and now you, you have Mr. Blake. The heart to really prime their heart to come and compete at the highest level for all these athletes uh, was something that they had to figure out, not to mention you have COVID-19 and what does that look like? So to see the response now, I'm very proud of how all of the athletes have united together across all the sports and say, hey, this, this is not right. It's just inhumane, no matter what the, what the color of your skin is, just inhumane that a person would be treated like this or someone has to die like this but what you're seeing is unity and that we need something to happen. We can't just wear the shirts, take the knees. We need to start seeing action. I want to follow up a little bit with that. I want to play a, a, a little bit of what NBA superstar LeBron James said yesterday. Let's, let's hear that. We are scared as black people in America. Black men, black women, black kids. We are terrified because you don't know. You have no idea how that cop that day left the house. You don't know if he walked on the good side of the bed, you don't know if he walked work on the wrong side of the bed, or maybe he just left the house saying that today is gonna be the end for one of these black people. That's what it feels like. That's what it feels like. Now, does the fact that superstars like LeBron James are leading this protest, does that make it easier for other players to join in solidarity? When you have someone as prominent with a powerful voice like a LeBron James stating, this is how he's feeling. This is how he believes, all, you know, uh, the culture is feeling. That's, I think that's really powerful. And so I, I applaud him in his effort. Um, and I can see where he's coming from it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm a black male and I, I go for runs in the morning and I can't sit here and lie to you and tell you that I'm not looking over my shoulder when I'm going for a run in my neighborhood, you know? And I don't know if it's gonna be a person 
I don't know if it's going to be a police officer. And please hear my heart. I'm not saying any of the police, not all police officers are bad. To LeBron's point, you don't know where the police officer may be at that day. And I think what would help is not to defunding the police is not the right thing to do. What we can do, though, is get them real good help and help so that when they do wake up or if they're having struggles with problems or something's going on in their life, that they have resources that can serve the police and strengthen them if they are in a situation that would cause them to make a bad decision in a very, very hostile situation. Black people, young kids, people of color, uh, Asian, Mexican, nobody wants, nobody wants to walk around in fear from someone who is legally there to protect someone. No one wants to walk around like that. No one wants to have that feeling. But the fact of the matter is you look at all these strings of these things from George Floyd to Breonna Taylor to Mr. Blake and, and Ahmaud, you know, all these things, you look at these different cases and scenarios and people don't have any narrative, but what they're seeing on, on television. And, and, it, and it's scary, you know, it's, it really is scary. Um, and it's heartbreaking. Finally, I wanted to come back to the, the bottom line question here. What's the significance of the sports world coming together like this? Do you think this boycott will lead to change? I think it, it will definitely push the needle towards change. I honestly believe that people revere sports figures. They're, they're, they're modern day heroes to a lot of people. And sports figures have access to resources that maybe the common person may not have. And that includes the owners as well. They have access to people that know how to change the laws, know how to talk to the right people. And if the owners and the athletes are all on the same page, trying to seek healthy change to prevent something like this from happening again. And, and in order for us to really seek change, we have to really be band united. And that's from the owner all the way down. So to see this right here, I think will push the needle a lot faster and a lot stronger towards change and, and to help really write what change should look like, uh, how it should be healthy long-term, um, not only for uh, the African-American community, but for communities in general, as well as police officers, you know, what that looks like. So I, I definitely believe them using their voice across all sports in this moment can push the needle towards change. I've been speaking with Pastor Greg Hendricks of the Rock Church East County, and he's a former professional basketball player and NBA assistant coach. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you, Mark. As we just heard, America is again confronting the aftermath of a police shooting of a black man. This time, seven shots fired into the back of Jacob Blake in Wisconsin. Ever since the killing of George Floyd at the hands of police officers this summer, many of America's police forces, schools, businesses, churches, and other organizations have been reevaluating their structures in an effort to confront and root out systemic racism. And it seems the U.S. military is engaged in that reckoning as well. Joining me is KPBS military and veterans reporter Steve Walsh to give us a preview of two KPBS specials evaluating systemic racism in the military. The first one takes place today. And Steve, welcome to the program. Hi, Maureen. Now, racism 
and the U.S. military has a long history, but even after overt segregation was abolished, the services knew they were dealing with ingrained racial bias. How have they tried to root that out in the past? Well, yes, this is not the first time that the U.S. military has looked at racial bias. There, there are a couple of different commissions out there right now. The DOD, the Pentagon, is looking at racial bias. And then each one of the services are also looking at racial bias, including the Navy, which has something called the One Navy Task Force. But, as, but you're completely right. This is not the first time. You can go all the way back to 1948 when uh, President Truman desegregated the military officially, which was well before the modern civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s. Um, they have had several runs at this, including in the 1970s, early 1970s, Admiral Zumwalt, uh, the CNO from the time, uh, came up with a whole range of changes to try to make the Navy more inclusive. And he had a, a tremendous amount of backlash. So. Yes, this is not the uh, the first time the Navy has looked at these issues, and they've been collecting data on some of these topic areas for years. Now, in this most recent iteration of the military's effort to confront racial bias, what reforms, if any, have been put into place? Well, right now they are still looking at them. The Navy has a very ambitious deadline. They set up their task force in July, and they're they expect to have a report due by December. And they're not just looking at uh, at racial bias, they're looking at bias in regards to gender, even uh, religion, even age. So they have an incredibly large mandate. Some of the things that have come up so far, the DOD has, uh, the Department of Defense has looked at uh, uh, banning photographs. When people come up for promotions, that you just simply won't have a photograph uh, for people to look at hoping that sort of weeds out some of those systemic prejudice. One of the reasons why you would want to do that is the Navy, while they're almost close to 20% of the enlisted are, uh, are, are uh, in the Navy are African-Americans, but only 9% of the, the officers. And then at the very highest ranks, the three and four star admirals, there are no African-Americans at all. Is that one of the major ways that racial bias is exhibited in the military in the fact that there are so few uh, officers and judges and so forth who are promoted to higher ranks? You hit upon another thing. That another major issue is criminal justice. And there are no uh, African-American judges in the, in the Navy at this point. Um, and we know that there the uh, Department of Defense and the General Accounting Office have, have looked at some of the racial biases and found that um, there are several areas where African-Americans seem to be getting into the system far earlier and far more often than anyone else in, in the military, though when it actually comes down to a court-martial, they're actually not convicted at any higher rate than, than anyone else, suggesting that maybe uh, people are filtering them into the justice system rather than maybe just taking them aside and trying to talk these these things out. KPBS is presenting two special programs about racism in the military. Today's program focuses on racial bias. And Steve, your guests have a wide range of experience. Can you give us an idea who will be on the panel? So we have Don Christensen, who is uh, the president of Protecting Our Defenders. They sued the military to get some of this data on uh, on the criminal uh, military criminal justice system. Uh, so he's got some of the real facts here. Stefan Williams, he uh, runs a leadership training firm in Melbourne, Florida. He's a retired Marine who works with the Department of Defense to facilitate these conversations. The Navy and the other services have talked about 
wanting to have these conversations, you know, at the deck plate level, people should start talking about their, their biases. Well, how do you do that? Stefan Williams is an actual expert in how you do that. And so, and we'll also be kind of reaching out to uh, folks in the audience to try to get us, you know, see if they want to contribute as well. We also have Admiral Harris, who is with the National uh, Naval uh, Officers Association, which was a group formed back in the 1970s to try to create more diversity in the Navy. And he's also working with the One Navy Task Force. We also have Michael Johnson, who is with the uh, the Munford Point Marine Association. This is a uh, this is a group that formed in the wake of World War II, when uh, Marines first allowed African Americans into the service. They were segregated in these units, and uh, then after the war, they were uh, they were not as welcome in some of the mainline veterans organizations. So they formed the Munford Point Marines Association to try to. Uh, to try to give a place for African-Americans to, to share their veteran experience. And we'll talk a little bit about like how, what role the veteran community plays in, in these issues. Now, you mentioned you're hoping to hear from veterans and members of the military uh, who will participate remotely in this meeting. How will that work? Well, you know, this is the, the age we're living in. We are initially trying to do these as live events. We would have flown people in from around the country and rented a hall, but now we're trying to do all these things uh, post-pandemic uh, via Zoom so people can log on and look at the panel. They'll also be able to ask questions. And we've got kind of a tight time frame here of one hour, but we're hoping to bring on a couple of vets to, to share their stories as well. So yes, it should be pretty as interactive as we can make it. What will the second of these special programs focus on? The second one is going to focus specifically on white supremacy and rooting out white supremacy in the uh, the U.S. military. We didn't want to combine these two groups, uh, you know, into one. We felt that racial bias deserved its own. And then we're looking at um, the rise of some of these new hate groups and how and why they are targeting the U.S. military and military service and what the military is doing and could be doing to root them out. And that is a week from today, the second program. That's next Thursday. If you'd like to take part in the KPBS special on racial bias in the military, you can sign up at kpbs.org slash events until 4 o'clock this afternoon, and the special begins at 6. Before we go, there's news now that the fire aboard the USS Bonhomme Richard at Naval Base San Diego last month was deliberately set. What do we know about that? We, we still know very little. This broke late yesterday, and I was able to confirm that, yes, uh, Naval NCIS was, uh, is looking at arson now from this July 12th fire, and they've questioned at least one sailor. Um, it, you know, this... Just so people remember, this fire happened. It burned for more than four days, Pierside at 32nd Street. Uh, at the time, the CNO came out and said that this, uh, this the ship may be a total loss because of the extensive damage. Talked about how there had been multiple explosions, including one that was heard as far as 13 miles away. Now they're looking at whether or not this might be arson. Though at this point, you have to caution, no charges have been filed, but this is where the investigation seems to be heading. Well, I, I thank you so much, and good luck tonight, Steve, uh, with your program. I've been speaking with KPBS military reporter Steve Walsh. Thank you. Thanks, Maureen. KPBS On Demand is supported by 
Bilhau Plumbing, Heating and Air, Restoration and Flood Services. Family owned and operated for three generations, Bilhau has been serving the plumbing, heating and air, and water damage needs of the San Diego area since 1980. With their fleet of trained professionals, Bilhau has the ability to service all major and minor plumbing and HVAC emergency needs 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Bilhau is committed to providing excellent service to their customers with transparent quotes and attention to detail on every job. Whether you're in need of an HVAC installation, plumbing, or water damage restoration in San Diego, they offer the convenience of scheduling an appointment over the phone, online, or through live chat on their website. Call 1-800-BILL-HOW or visit billhow.com. Because we know how. I'm Mark Sauer with Maureen Cavanaugh, and you're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. As much as COVID-19 has been written about, discussed, and has changed our daily lives over the last six months, there are still many unanswered questions about the pandemic. And there's still a lot of confusion about what are the best practices in keeping ourselves and our loved ones safe. KPBS health reporter Taryn Mento gathered inquiries from our listeners, viewers, and online audience and asked local infectious disease specialist, Dr. Christian Ramers, for some answers. Dr. Ramers is one of the leaders within the local medical community responding to COVID-19. Here's that interview. Okay, jumping right into it, Andrew Blum of Point Loma has the first question for you. It seems like San Diego, kind of plus or minus, is, is just been hovering around 200, 300 cases. And my question is, does that mean we have a low level of COVID and the risk is not so great? Or are we doing absolutely everything we can and just hanging on by our fingernails to keep case levels at that level and therefore, you know, letting up at all, you know, will make those cases go back up again? I think the first thing we should keep in mind is that the CDC estimates that we're probably only diagnosing 10 to 20% of the actual cases out there. So that two to 300 may actually represent just the tip of the iceberg of those that may be asymptomatic, but uh, positive. And so I think two to 300 is actually kind of a big number. Uh, other pl- parts of the world and other, other countries are seeing much, much lower numbers and having much stricter lockdowns with lower numbers than us. But of course, it's all relative. If we go uh, just to our north to Los Angeles, we're talking more like thousands of cases. Uh, so San Diego, I think, is, is sort of somewhat in the middle. And I think that some of the measures that we've been taking really shouldn't change whether we see 200 or 500. They should be the same in terms of uh, keeping your distance and wearing masks and, and um, trying to reduce the transmission. Keep in mind that if those 200 people don't self-isolate, they could probably pass on to another 200. And then you just get a, a chain reaction and, and perpetuation of the epidemic. So what we really want to see is a lot less than that, down to just sort of single numbers. You look at places like New York City and New York State, they're getting down to extremely low numbers, which actually opens up the whole ability to open up society again and start schools and those types of things. Paul, who lives in East County, says he's been seeing many people at the beach over the last several months, almost none of them wearing masks or social distancing. But he says there doesn't seem to be a significant increase in cases associated with that activity. And he's wondering if the county is tracking outbreaks at beaches, if you're aware of that, and why this behavior may not be resulting in a lot of COVID cases. So being outside is so much better than being inside. This is, this is something we've learned kind of halfway through the epidemic. There was a study that modeled this out and it showed that uh, you were 19 times less likely to be infected with COVID with the same interaction uh, outdoors compared to indoors. 
if you read the guidelines, wearing masks really is not mandatory if you are outside and able to keep your distance more than six feet from somebody. For example, there's a lot of questions about exercising outdoors and do you need to wear a mask when you're running or biking? And the answer is if you can keep your distance and you're outdoors, you actually do not need a mask in that situation. So it really disturbs people a lot to see a, a beach full of people without masking. But if they are uh, staying away from each other, there is a very, very low likelihood of transmission. So to, to Paul's question, seeing people outdoors, as long as they're keeping their distance, you can be with your household members if you're considered sort of part of one group and one bubble. Um, you know, you don't have to separate from those people. But keeping six feet away from everybody else, that's where masks become less necessary. Uh, where masks are absolutely necessary is in any indoor situation or any situation where you have to be closer than six feet uh, to somebody. So I think what we're seeing in terms of the county case rates is a, a combination of things. People are kind of getting the idea that being outdoors is better than being indoors. And we are seeing increased rates of mask wearing in, in people that are indoors, especially in businesses where it's required. I don't believe the county is tracking beach or outdoor related outbreaks because it's just kind of harder to do. They're more classifying things by restaurant, bar, haircutting place, spa, uh, business, and those types of things. Can you clarify what we know about how the virus spreads that makes it safer to be outside without a mask than indoors? Because we keep hearing, you know, back and forth over it spreads with only air droplets. Some people say it spreads airborne. So clarify what we know as of today. Yeah, so there's been some reports about more distant airborne spread. These are sort of scientific experiments where they do these idealized conditions and say, well, if somebody breathes out a tiny little particle and you're more than six feet away, could you get infected? So there's been a little bit more of an acceptance in the scientific literature that airborne spread is more active in an active way of spreading. But I think most of us believe that by and large, it's small uh, droplets, which are generally going to fall to the ground within about six feet. That's where that recommendation comes from. But in reality, it's probably a mix. And the most important factors here are just proximity and time, actually. We don't think about it that much, but if you're in a closed room within six feet from somebody for two hours, that's a massive exposure compared to 10 minutes outdoors. And when we think about outdoors, there's wind, there's this just massive dilution effect where the wind can just move particles all over the place. Like I said, much, much less risky to be outdoors, but again, small droplets and a little bit of airborne transmission. I personally feel like if this was a primarily airborne related transmitted virus, we would see a whole lot more cases than we're seeing. So while that might be possible to transmit airborne beyond six feet, I don't think it's a major route that's contributing. A lot of debate about this. It's hard to prove one way or the other. But just think about this. In a household contact situation where one member of the household is infected, the transmission rate to other household members is only about 20 to maybe 30 percent in the literature. Uh, so I think really it is that proximity being within six feet and, and time of contact uh, between the individual, which tells me that it's mainly those respiratory droplets. So speaking of being outdoors and it's uh, minimizing the risk, but saying that you said that it's still possible, we have a 76-year-old listener who has a granddaughter that lives with her. And the granddaughter contracted COVID at the beach while hanging out with friends. The group of eight all got COVID but weren't hospitalized. And, and here she is asking you her question. Uh, my name is Maria Sepulveda. I live in Chula Vista, California, and my question is, can you get COVID again after you have one time? This is a hot topic right now. You know, early on when we had these massive outbreaks in New York City and in Europe, we just were not seeing reinfection as an entity. There were so many millions of infections in these places and reinfection was just not being observed. And so most people thought that there was at least some immunity from those that had been infected. And we think at least it's probably about 90 days. 
that you have some protection. Of course, all human beings are different and we're gonna have different immune responses to the virus. Some people will develop a very robust response with what are called neutralizing antibodies and they're just protected, they're gonna be fine. So other people, especially if they have immunocompromising conditions or uh, take chronic steroid medicines may not develop as strong of an immune response and people that have asymptomatic infection may develop a little bit of a weaker response. So there's a little uncertainty around how long we are protected for, but what is sure now, just in the last two to three days, is there's a report from Hong Kong and then two more reports from Europe. So that's a total of three cases that have been confirmed that are definitely reinfections. Now, I think that the details of the Hong Kong case are just being released this morning, so I haven't studied it in detail, but my understanding is that the reinfection was a very, very mild reinfection. In fact, I think the individual was asymptomatic, uh, which means that reinfection, though it may theoretically occur, it probably does not occur within the first three months or so after being exposed in the beginning. And it looks like it might actually be a milder version if you get re-exposed. This is very, very important uh, for us to study because it may be that the vaccine provides relatively temporary immunity uh, with our, our long history of coronaviruses, which cause many common cold viruses. Immunity tends to be on the sort of months to maybe a year, uh, two years maximum in terms of immunity. So in that respect, reinfection is possible and it probably is going to be mild from, from what we're seeing so far. So here's another one for you. Hi, Dr. Rammers. My name is Monica Stapleton and I live in Solana Beach. I have three children and I'm wondering what your opinion is about the vaccines and how likely are you to get a vaccine or to give one to your children? Very good question, uh, Monica. So I, as an infectious disease doctor who has literally seen people die of vaccine preventable diseases and have followed the public health benefit of these interventions, I am very pro-vaccine. Just I'm just going to get that out there as a disclaimer. I took my family to Africa to work for several months and got everybody as vaccinated as possible, <laughs> including my two-year-old son at the time. Uh, so how am I going to evaluate a vaccine? You know, we have a process in this country uh, that's been very well worked out with phase one, phase two, and phase three studies, uh, where safety and efficacy are evaluated very rigorously and in a, in a double-blinded, placebo-controlled way. And that process is not deviated. It may be going slightly faster than usual, and people may, may be concerned, especially because the name of the whole program is Operation Warp Speed. But the process is the same in and of itself. Uh, a vaccine will have to show that it's at least 50% effective at reducing disease of, by COVID by 50% in order to be approved by the FDA. And I think we just have to have uh, faith that it's going to be a transparent and open and non-political process the way it has always been. I would like to cite the examples of China and Russia, which have actually gone ahead and approved vaccines without doing large phase three trials. That's not how we are doing things. We're doing things by our usual process, uh, looking through the phase three data and ensuring that it's safe, not only in a couple hundred people or a couple thousand people, but these big trials are gonna be 30,000 people. And we hope that that's a big enough number to catch any adverse effect or any side effect. In terms of whether I'm going to get a vaccine myself, I would really like to. At this point, these are available only in research trials, and the research trials tend to be focused on those that are highest risk. So it's actually easier to enroll in a vaccine trial right now if you're over age 65 or if you have an underlying condition. And in, in my own case, I'm not really a prime research candidate at this point, but I'm certainly going to sign up. Um, in terms of getting my kids vaccinated, like I said, I, I'm very pro-vaccine because looking at the numbers, I think a vaccine is really the best way for us to get out of this mess. 
you know, we think that you have to have herd immunity of about 60 to 70% of the population immune to COVID, at least over the short term, in order for us to really uh, see the case numbers go down significantly. We're not going to get there by natural infection. Uh, if we did, we would have to just be wide open and there'd be a whole lot more death and our healthcare system would be overwhelmed. So supplementing natural immunity from infection with vac vaccination is really where we need to be. Not everybody needs to take it. And I've seen some surveys that you know 30 to 40% of the population is a little wary right now of getting vaccinated uh, because things are moving so fast. But as long as 50, 60% of the population gets vaccinated, that will be from a public health perspective, a way to get out of the epidemic. That was KPBS health reporter, Taryn Mento speaking with Dr. Christian Ramers. The hundreds of wildfires, large and small, burning in California have threatened people and communities, but what's been the effects on animals and their habitats? Experts say in some cases, not as bad as you might think. With more on wildfire and wildlife, here's KQED reporter Sam Harnett. Stephen Sargent recorded this morning chorus at a lake in Henry Coe Park. Located in the Diablo Range backcountry southeast of San Jose, it's the second largest state park in California. And it's filled with wildlife, like tule elk, black-tailed jackrabbits, and western bluebirds. But the area was overrun by flames last week. About 40,000 acres burned, half of the entire park. That makes Wes Gray pretty happy. From the ecological standpoint, I think the plants and animals are going to see a, a great benefit from this fire at Henry Coe. Gray is a natural resource manager for California state parks. One of the things in state parks where we're always trying to reintroduce fire because all the plant and animal communities in California are fire adapted. Take redwoods. Big Basin State Park north of Santa Cruz burned. But scientists say most of the redwoods will be fine. They have flame-resistant bark, super high canopies that avoid flame, and they actually need some fire. It clears competitors and makes great sequoia seeds germinate. What about the rest of the wildlife in California? Let's start with the birds like this Stellar's jay. Adult birds simply fly away, but that leaves baby birds to face the flames on their own. Which brings us to condors, a critical endangered species in California. There are four baby condors currently missing near Big Sur, which may not mean tragedy. According to the Ventana Wildlife Society, most baby condors survive wildfires, especially if their nests happen to be located in redwoods. The Big Sur Condor Research Facility, on the other hand, didn't survive. The whole thing burned, and scientists are now seeking donations. As for small mammals like squirrels, rabbits, and chipmunks... They either run for large rocky areas or burrow underground. Scientists say a squirrel den is a pretty safe place for most fires. Some are up to six feet deep. Elk and deer will take refuge in the stream or try to outrun the flames, says Gray from state parks. That is harder to do, though, in fires with high winds. The fires are moving faster in some situations, particularly when the fire is burning uphill for an animal to escape, so they may get trapped. Now, big predators are some of the worst off. Mountain lions can outrun most fires, but where do they go? John Keeley is a research scientist with the U.S. Geological Survey. It's a lot of developed areas, 
That's a problem because there's no place for these animals to go to. Humans have destroyed so much habitat in California. Over a quarter of the landmass is now used for agriculture. 95% of the redwoods were logged, an estimated 90% of the wetlands destroyed, and the state is carved up by 394,000 miles of road. So when a fire destroys habitat, it's hard for predators to find food. In most metropolitan areas, they see plenty of examples of wildlife coming out of the wildland areas simply due to lack of food. Sometimes a mountain lion survives a wildfire only to die from starvation. This is the real danger, that human-caused climate change and urban and agricultural development has destroyed too much habitat for mountain lions and condors and the like to survive another century with us in their neighborhood. And in the end, they won't be sad about it. We will. For the California Report, I'm Sam Harnett. KPBS On Demand is supported by Bill Howe Plumbing, Heating, and Air Restoration and Flood Services. Family owned and operated for three generations, Bill Howe has been serving the plumbing, heating and air, and water damage needs of the San Diego area since 1980. With their fleet of trained professionals, Bill Howe has the ability to service all major and minor plumbing and HVAC emergency needs 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Bill Howe is committed to providing excellent service to their customers with transparent quotes and attention to detail on every job. Whether you're in need of an HVAC installation, plumbing, or water damage restoration in San Diego, they offer the convenience of scheduling an appointment over the phone, online, or through live chat on their website. Call 1-800-BILL-HOWE or visit billhowe.com. Because we know how. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh with Mark Sauer. Our summer music series continues with some sweet soul over rare grooves. San Diego band The Sacred Souls have a sound that harkens back to the 60s, Motown, and Stax record era. The trio only started playing a year ago, but by their second show, they were signed to the funk and soul label Daptones Records that brought us Sharon Jones and Amy Winehouse. The Sacred Souls don't just replicate what's been done. They bring a fresh spin on the oldies, or as the soul music revival has come to be known, soldies. Here's The Sacred Souls performing their single, Can I Call You Rose? Can I call you Rose? That was The Sacred Souls performing Can I Call You Rose. The Sacred Souls are Alex Garcia, drums. Alex, welcome. Hey, thanks for having us. Sal Simano on bass. Sal, hello. How's it going? (laughs) Pretty good. And Josh Lane on vocals. Hi, Josh. Hello. And they join us today and welcome to Midday Edition, all three of you. Let me start with you, Josh. Where did you get the inspiration to write Can I Call You Rose? quick story on that was me Alex and Sal would meet to record in Alex's garage and so I looked back in his garage in his garage and he has these really big blankets you get from like the 
You know what I'm talking about? Swap, swap, yeah, swap me. yeah, like those swap big swap me blankets. And then there's this really big one with all these roses. And so just out of necessity for writing, I was like, okay, jump on the roses. That'll help me. Okay, roses are romantic. It flew out in a very organic way. Usually what I have to do is go back and like change words. and, But this time it just flew together. And I think it was a good thing that it happened that way though, because that was the first song technically as a three piece that we wrote together. It was the first full song, right, Alex? So, I mean, yeah. To me, I think it was really important for it to flow that way because it just gave confidence in us as a band to be like, oh, we have an energy together. Okay, we know your influences include indie folk and black soul, and I think most people are familiar with both of those genres, but there's also Chicano soul. And Sal, what is Chicano soul? Chicano soul is, it was kind of more underground. You know, there was uh, groups like uh, the Midnighters, um, Sonny Osuna and the Sunliners. They all had their, you know, classics that were huge in the Chicano community. You know, it all kind of went along with, you know, the lowrider scene. And it was kind of just its own little scene of like traditions and stuff like that. Is there a different kind of cultural feel from Chicano soul and black soul? What is Chicano soul? I'd say like the music style is a little different. You know, the, the singing style is different. It's a little it's a little more raw. It's mostly sounding pretty garagey production-wise. And Did Chicano Soul build sort of a bridge between that soul era and, and what came after it? Did it keep soul going, Josh? I think it, it did because as soul kind of started to evolve in, in the 80s and 90s, more people were kind of going to R&B and listening to some of the rhythm and blues going on and uh, pop R&B. And I'm sure like my family, my, my grandma and grandpa, when, when we barbecue, they, they got their soul hits and they throw them out. But as a collective culture, I feel like Chicano Soul took Black Soul and some of the Chicano Soul artists that Sal brought up, the, the two of those things and just kept it moving forward. Let's hear another song from you guys. Uh, let's hear Week For Your Love. was the Sacred Souls performing Week for Your Love with Jensen Benitas on backup vocals. How did you discover, how did you guys discover soul to begin with? I mean, you know, this is sort of your parents' music. Yeah. <laughs> so how did you get there? Well, I've always grown up with it. You know, I, I feel like soul and, and having a barbecue with the family is just something that just goes hand in hand. I grew up on like the Delphonics and Brandon Wood and stylistics kind of more of like the classics but when i was like 18 19 i discovered daptone and um, big crown records coal mine records all these all these uh labels that were bringing soul back to life um putting out soul records you know and uh through them i i started listening into more deeper stuff uh i met sal we started uh talking about this project and started getting into collecting records through sal's dad who's also a big record collector Alex, let me ask you, what was it like being signed to Daptone Records, one of your inspirations? Oh, man, that's pretty much like the craziest feeling you can imagine. 
it's it's I've always wanted to be uh, part of the the label of Daptone, and I've always uh, respected them and what they stood for. So just being able to say that I'm I'm working with them, working with my heroes, and and can consider them my friends, I feel like that's just a it's a big honor, and it feels like I, I accomplished something, you know, at, at my age already. I, I, I'm really just fortunate to be a part of the label. Part of the sort of uh, idea of music at this time, at the time that you guys are reaching back in the past and you're pulling it forward, like from Sam Cooke to Marvin Gaye, musicians that used to use their voices for social change. And I'm thinking about your song, Give Us Justice. And Josh, was it hard to write Give Us Justice? The song kind of wrote and spoke for itself because these things were fresh. And I was listening to Change Is Gonna Come's lyrics and realized that it was void of some of those social justice meanings to me because it was just a pretty song and it was on movies and all these things. But that first line, I was born by the river in a little tent. Oh, just like a river I've been running ever since. The idea that a river never stops running unless it dries up. And in his life as a black man, he'd always been running or looking over his back or thinking he might be killed or his economic choices were slim, if any. It just really felt, I felt the weight of it because I might not have been someone who was murdered, but it doesn't matter my social class or how my friends see me in a certain situation. I could have been any of the people who had lost their lives to police brutality or just to brutality in general. And so it was real easy. Let's hear it. This is Give Us Justice by These Sacred Souls. Could have been me. Could have been me. Lying on the concrete. There's a knee against my neck. Bleeding for my breath. Give 
Until there's justice Until there's justice That was The Sacred Souls performing Give Us Justice. And I've been speaking with Alex Garcia and Sal Simano and Josh Lane, the three members of The Sacred Souls. If you want to hear the full interview and see The Sacred Souls music video for Can I Call You Rose, you can go to kpbs.org slash summer music series. I want to thank you guys so much for sitting down and talking to us and sharing the music with us. It's really been a pleasure. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Appreciate it. And next week, our summer music series continues with songwriter Alfred Howard and artist Marion Howard. KPBS On Demand is supported by Bill Howe Plumbing, Heating and Air, Restoration and Flood Services. Family owned and operated for three generations, Bill Howe has been serving the plumbing, heating and air and water damage needs of the San Diego area since 1980 with their fleet of trained professionals. Bill Howe has the ability to service all major and minor plumbing and HVAC emergency needs 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Bill Howe is committed to providing excellent service to their customers with transparent quotes and attention to detail on every job. Whether you're in need of an HVAC installation, plumbing, or water damage restoration in San Diego, they offer the convenience of scheduling an appointment over the phone, online, or through live chat on their website. Call 1-800-BILL-HOWE or visit billhowe.com. Because we know how.